Hello all, and welcome back for part two of our We Island series, this time south of the border, and with a guest who, let's just say, is not afraid to speak her mind. As a result, we have some excellent outtakes featuring Lucasaid and, well, speaking your mind. If you'd like to hear said outtakes, go to patreon.com forward slash two scientists and for as little as a dollar per episode released, we'll treat you, our loyal patrons, to some of the extras that don't make it into our final episodes. But if you just want to hear the polished version, stay tuned for our chat with the ambassador for microfluidics. Hello everyone, this is your host Pam Bahia speaking, closing out our trip to Ireland with our second podcast. Today's recording is taking place just outside Dublin in a little place along the coast. Confusingly, we have with us today two Davids. The first is David Basanta, producer of the show, and the second, for long-term fans, is David Robert Grimes, a guest during season two and star of the episode The Dark Knight of Science, or something like that. Enough about all of us, though. Let me introduce you to today's scientist, Dr. Edine Carthy. How's life treating you, Edine? Life is good. Sun is shining, which is very rare in Ireland, but we're enjoying it right now. I'm sure you probably can hear the lovely birds in the background, so it's just nice to sit out and uh, get some vitamin D for once. Yeah. Try not be as pasty. Yeah. It's hard. Yes. <laughs> I usually get my tan from a bottle, which is, is handy for us pasty <laughs> Irish girls. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I, I always feel guilty talking about the weather. I'm glad that I'm in good company here. Uh, in any case, uh, what we like to do to help introduce you to our, our listeners a little bit more is get you to tell us about your scientific background. So what was it that inspired you to kind of take up a science and in your case, engineering type of training? I really fell into engineering. I'm not like an engineer by trade. I have a degree in physics and biomedical sciences from oh. Dublin City University. And that was kind of inspired from a teacher that I had in my secondary school or from my high school. And he was just the best teacher ever. And like I went to an all girls school. So you can imagine, I think there was seven of us that did physics uh-huh. out of 120 students. So we actually got really good Uh, one-on-one attention from him and he was just an amazing teacher and he just was really good at explaining things and making things kind of as transparent as possible so I was like I really like physics always wanted to be a doctor of some sort but my guidance counselor in my school at the time forgot to sign me up for the HPATH which is the uh, aptitude test she just forgot to sign me up so I was like right I'm not going to hang around for another year to do it again I was like I'll just do physics biomedical science and I could be like um could work in the hospital as a a physicist and I was like kind of liked my pan went and did physics uh quite enjoyed it I was a bit of a bum in college I'm not gonna lie <laughs> didn't go to too many classes I went to the ones that interested me but because it was physics or biomedical sciences we didn't really have that many kind of biology based subjects until maybe third and fourth years so mm. we did things like immunology and I really loved that but it was in my third year I had to do a lab in microfluidics and I just thought this was absolutely amazing, thought it was so cool, got to go in, because obviously with physics, you're not doing too many like physical labs, it's usually just sitting down, doing maths, doing a lot of simulation stuff. So the fact that I could go into a lab and use things like lasers and all of these machines to create devices, I just thought this is the coolest thing in the world. So for my fourth year of my final year project, 
um, I did a microfluidics based one and from that I got to do like an internship with the BDI at the time, it's the Biomedical Diagnostics Institute and from there that's when I started to learn how to like implement assays onto these devices and again I just thought this is mind-blowing because something like physics you would never learn anything about this and that's how it all started. I um, worked in a research group for a while and then I received money to do my PhD. So I looked at early sepsis detection within these microfluidic devices using like biosensors that were implemented within the device. Mm -hmm. So you could do like real time detection of these things. So for for the assay that I had developed and implemented on a device, you could have sample answer in, in 15 minutes. So the idea was to create an instrument that could be in an ICU unit or just kind of in like a wet room off the ICU unit Yeah, that you could like maybe extract five mils of blood from the patient, pop it into a device, 15 minutes later, does this person have sepsis? Is it gram positive type bacteria, gram negative or candida? Yeah. When we looked at, you know, the 20 most um, obvious kind of sepsis causing pathogens that, that people would have, the candida was the fungal one. So mm -hmm. we just kind of stuck with that. So that was my PhD. And then I started postdocing for a while afterwards with someone within engineering, we got funding in to look at microfluidics again. And that's how I came into engineering. And from moving between all of these different departments, I was like, engineering is amazing. And they were so nice. And like, I feel like I'm probably like the second female that they've probably ever seen in their lives. Cause like, it's just so male dominated, which is fine. And you can kind of see why it's very like a traditional male role that you're working with these big machines and you have to take out and like replace big parts and whatever. Obviously that's changed now, thank God. But going into the workshops and seeing the machines that they could use and seeing what those machines are capable of doing, I just thought this was fascinating. So I was lucky enough then to get a position as an assistant professor within the Department of Mechanical and Manufacturing Engineering then in Dublin City University. So I've been doing that since November and I absolutely love it. So that's that's how I got to where I am now. That's my life story. <laughs> Summarise in two or three minutes. It works for us. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you're an assistant professor. Now, the UK system is quite different. So how does that relate to the American system, which I assume is what most of our listeners will be familiar with? I presume it's considered like it's a senior lectureship, but again, like you, you do your teaching, whatever you're allocated to teach. So I'm, I'm developing two modules for sustainability engineering, but then there's obviously the heavy research element of it as well. So I think 50% of, of your workload is your research. So you are expected to get grants in, start a research group. But in Ireland, it's very different to America, where if you are a new hire coming into the department, um, you are given like a, a bit of a slush fund. So I, mm -hmm. I know like if you're considered kind of a bit of a talent coming into the department they might give you like a million dollars to start your group or kickstart your research we actually don't have that in Ireland so it's really hard to kind of kickstart your research if you're just starting out so yeah. I have a lot of like say publications in the background that I'm like kind of finishing off work so I'm in this weird position where I'm nearly half my time I'm still in my postdoc role because I'm trying to finish off my experiments I'm trying to develop modules I'm supervising these master students projects you have all these new responsibilities as a new staff member of sitting on board like chairing of boards and like just, it's just crazy and you're I do feel like I've been thrown in the deep end but the support I have within the department is phenomenal so I'm really lucky in that sense but it's hardcore that's what I'll say <laughs> but I do love it I don't like I never thought I was actually going to be in a position to be able to kind of teach as my job mm -hmm. as an academic because I know obviously that transition from 
being a postdoc to an assistant professor, not that many people do transition through that program. It's very difficult to get kind of on the tenure track for academics. I know, especially within Ireland and England, but we're having like a bit of a population boom at the moment. Yeah. So there's a big initiative in Ireland called the Human Capital Initiative. So they had to fund a lot of new assistant professors within the colleges to keep up the demand of new people coming into the universities as well because especially with covid people had more access to universities because they had the time to do so yeah so we did have to adopt like kind of this high flex hybrid learning model within the universities and we're going to try keep some elements of that to allow people to keep their jobs do this stuff in the evenings and still walk away with a, a high impact degree because dcu especially is voted top 50 young universities within the world oh wow it's uh, it's a credit to them because i think the university only opened in around the, the 80s at some stage uh-huh. so it is a very young university and like our employment rates are like through the roof for like graduates and everything as well so it's a, it's a really fun campus and you can really feel that kind of energy when you're on when you're on site and everything as well so it's so nice to have people back on the campus it's so weird seeing people's faces around oh, yeah. the place yeah, I think it's a bit of a culture shock or something. I don't know what it is. Just like, oh yeah, this is what it's like to be a human again, <laughs> to be surrounded by more than two people. And but it's just nice to have the atmosphere back on the campus as well. Yeah, I feel like I'm rambling. I don't know how I got no, to this no. point. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the the way conversations go, obviously, you there are clearly things that you've observed during the course of your your training and what's what's currently happening within the world. But yeah, I mean, we should probably reiterate the fact that, uh, what is it, like 97% of Ireland is vaccinated, something like that, the people who can be are. We have a huge uptake for the vaccine, which is actually incredible, because when you do look at some countries that the uptake isn't as much as here. Talking to two Floridians here. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, you've seen the worst of it, but it's just... I'm saying this, my dad isn't vaccinated. He is one of those and I love him to bits. And he's, the thing with my dad is he's so intelligent, but he just didn't get the schooling. Like back in Ireland, back in the 70s and 80s, it was okay for a 12 year old to drop out of school and do a trade. And that's what he did. That is bananas. It's crazy when you think 12 years old to move out of home, to move somewhere else to do a trade. Like you're, you're literally an infant. It's just crazy to think. And that's what my dad did. But he's, he's a carpenter, but he is got such a knack for mats and I think that's where I got kind of my love for mats from as well because I mean when you think about it, a carpenter you're, you're doing calculations in your head all the time um, but because I think he didn't get a formal education I think he was more susceptible to this kind of misinformation malinformation regarding vaccines and all these different things that he just never got vaccinated and then he was you know he goes on his rants from time to time he's like this that bloody vaccine it's killing everyone it's like it's kind of doing the opposite (laughs) but anyway but in Ireland we are very lucky that people were just like people were being sound (laughs) people saw the effects that it was having on the healthcare system and the healthcare workers and I think it's because Ireland is quite small that we're all related to someone that's everyone has (laughs) an auntie who is a nurse yeah I think it's a given so like I have a few aunties that are nurses and they were kind of reporting back of what they were seeing and just the states that our hospitals were in and what were happening to certain people. And then the long term effects of getting COVID as well when you were not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the scary thing as well, because people are getting like long term heart conditions and lung conditions. And we, we still don't know the effect of COVID that people when they had COVID of what that's happening on their body for long-term effects. That's the other scary thing on top of it. Obviously, people who got it and passed away, maybe they were like old or immunocompromised, but it's the young people that didn't get vaccinated, got COVID, and now they have heart conditions. Yeah. And you're just like, 
this is all preventable which is the really really sad thing about it as well but there's just so much crap on the internet it's just so hard to see what is actually good information bad information and that's where the problem lies it's yeah. in, it, uh, it is instagram it's tiktok because yeah. it's so easy to access YouTube. youtube yeah you're just you like it's all clickbait stuff you could be just like swiping on tiktok on instagram and something obviously is like oh if you get vaccinated your child is going to have autism or yeah. you know these these crazy facts but because it's such captivating information mm-hmm. that's that's the stuff that sticks with you rather than oh vaccination saves lives it's shown to eradicate polio in whatever year peep that does not stay with people because it's just a fact where it's like yeah. oh mary down the road got vaccinated and she grew a third arm <laughs> oh that's crazy don't be getting vaccinated kids because that's the information that stays with you and it yes. is depressing it is yeah it is social media actually depresses me I say that but when I go on Instagram it's just full of dog videos and that also (laughs) makes me very very happy (laughs) well that's the thing I mean you get what you want out of it right Uh, well yeah there's algorithms that obviously like whatever you're liking or whatever so but so obviously mine is cooking and dogs I'm like wow they they know me really well So, uh, kind of related to that subject, first of all, I am going to ask you for a definition of what microfluidics actually is, because in one of your emails to David, you stated you're an ambassador for the subject. Do you love microfluidics? <laughs> I just, I really do. Everyone's like, you're such a weirdo, because your eyes light up when you talk about microfluidics. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. It's so cool. But like microfluidics, it's simple as anything. It's been around since like the 60s or something, mm-hmm. but it's just the study of fluids on the micro and nano scale and that's and the manipulation of fluids so like i'm looking at it from more of a biology side because i do point of care testing so um blood is quite a complex matrix but i mean you centrifuge it down you have your different components red blood cells white blood cells you have your proteins plasma everything so in microfluidic channels you can do all of these kind of centrifugation and everything on a smaller scale and from that if you're scaling everything down essentially on surfaces such as biosensors cells are much larger mm-hmm. than they would be if you took five mils of blood from a person if you only have 10 microliters it's easier to kind of capture things like pathogens because you're shrinking down your space and it becomes more specific when you're working with like say antibody capture surfaces and everything as well so that's my line of work with microfluidics it's microfluidics within um like microfluidic platforms that are used to like test for diseases and everything so i'm more of the like the life science applications for microfluidics but like it started from people using inkjet printers printing toner that's like hydrophilic or hydrophobic yeah and you can manipulate the flow of liquids even just use it just printing off a sheet of paper and and dropping fluids onto it and you can separate fluids out and join them back together so it's very cool like you can dry say like if you had a a 10-step assay you could trigger which ones which liquids to mix in a different sequence based on how you design your channels if you want to make them hydrophilic hydrophobic you can introduce valving wax valving you can like melt with like lasers and different things you're actually you're incorporating a lot of weird things (laughs) but the fact that you can like it's essentially lateral flow assays that's microfluidics because it's the flow of liquid through porous materials so yeah. it's, it's capillary action you're you're driving the force of whatever it's going to be 10 mark, microliters 20 microliters so that's technically microfluidics so that's something that we all know but we wouldn't technically know that it's microfluidics and yeah. obviously point of care testing as well yeah so lateral flow assays for for the folks who don't necessarily know this terminology this is the the rapid antigen test that we have for covid yeah exactly actually during my phd um i got to go to a university in tarragona in spain and they developed lateral flow assays 
it's called the Selex process, S-E-L-E-X. So it's how you make strands of DNA very specific to a target analyte. So we were actually developing lateral flow assays to detect E. coli in water samples and in milk samples. Mm -hmm. And they were one of the first labs in the world to actually develop the antigen test lateral flow strip within the, the devices. They were one of the first groups in the world to actually develop it for COVID. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. So like when this is in Spain, I think they were supplying them to the local hospitals and like the local police stations and obviously where they were needed most because they just didn't exist yet. They weren't commercially available. So, I mean, I think this is the end of 2020 that had this developed. That's like that's how fast science is moving during the pandemic as well, which is just crazy to think about because I mean even how fast the vaccines were developed the fact that we could get these tests delivered to everyone's homes and test for COVID like I don't, I don't think people appreciate how amazing that is mm-hmm. I mean we obviously take it for granted because we just go into a shop and buy a, an antigen test to see if we have COVID but yeah. like when you actually think of this the amount of scientists that worked on this within that lab obviously they worked during the pandemic and everything was shut down they got special permissions to go into the lab and they were working over like crazy over time like 20 hours a day 22 hours a day to try get this very specific capture antibody or capture optimer that is very specific towards the, the covid virus yeah compared to anything else to try obviously stop false positive false negatives so yeah one of those was developed in a lab that i worked in and like that's how i i actually developed some of those tests but i actually would like to do that work again because it's just really cool yeah <laughs> it's amazing because so I think one of the other things that you ended up doing was um, you worked on the the PCR tests as well. Is that right? I've worked with PCR, not PCR for COVID. I see. Um, But a lot of my work for my PhD was looking at pathogen detection. So I looked at, you know, um, bacteria that may cause sepsis. I looked at E. coli and water samples, different things like that. So one of the detection methods that you can use is PCR. So obviously PCR is just this amplification process where you're trying to amplify it per target. If it amplifies, it's in the sample. If it doesn't amplify, it's negative for what you're testing for. But I'm still using kind of PCR and a lot of work that I'm doing now for plant pathogen stuff. I clearly love pathogens because (laughs) everything I do is surrounded by them. So I'm looking at uh, plant pathogen stuff at the moment. So I'm looking at CMM bacteria, which is very specific to tomato plant. Mm -hmm. So it basically is tomato blight but because tomato is the biggest food crop in the world which I actually didn't know until recently it accounts for something like 16% of total food produced in the world is the tomato wow yeah crazy like okay billions and like hundreds of billions of tons of tomatoes are produced every year and then obviously we have the the tomato blight so you so many crops are destroyed if they get this this disease um so I'm looking at you know taking maybe a, a sample from a leaf and being able to put it into one of my devices and again, run PCR on it. And if it's positive, they would have to destroy a certain area of the crop. So because this test can be done in 30 to 45 minutes, you could probably target the area of the crop that you want to look at if you suspect it of being kind of infected with the, the blight. So you can actually zone off the areas that may need to be destroyed. So you're going to reduce the amount of food that is wasted then in the world as, as well, do you know? Well, that's the idea behind it. But I mean, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, I mean, it's science. It's probably not going to work. <laughs> We have to admit that 99% of the stuff we do in the lab is just thrown out, discarded. Oh. We, we hope to learn from it, but yeah. sometimes these things don't work, and I think you just have to accept that. But I've got preliminary data that is working. Like I said, I'm in this kind of weird position where I have a lot of ongoing projects from when I was a postdoc, so I'm kind of like still in the lab all the time. Mm-hmm. And some of the more senior professors just like, 
no, what are you doing? Stop wasting your time. Get a student to do it. And I was like, but I actually really like being in the lab. <laughs> and I was like, I feel really bad just like offloading work to someone. But obviously that's research as well. You yeah. can't do everything yourself. The whole point of research is that it's a collaborative process. And the crazy thing is like you obviously learn way more than like you would yourself sitting at home reading papers or something. You could just simply ask a, a question to a person and it could be answered within two seconds yep. if that's their area of research. Because even I was chatting with a professor a few weeks ago, he looks at the CRISPR Cas stuff. Yeah, so the DNA editing, that's his big area of research. And one of his students is kind of adopting Mike Felix for one of his projects. And he just asked me a few questions behind it. And to me, this is so simple. And I was like, oh, it's just, you know, X, Y, and Z. You just have to design it this way or invert it this way and you get proper flow. And you have to be mindful of the dimensions here because I can't even remember what the conversation was. And he was just like, that, that's really interesting. I never would have thought that. And I was like, this is kind of like microfluidics 101. But then in my head, I was like, actually, if I has asked him anything about DNA or CRISPR, mm-hmm. he would probably think I'm an idiot. Just like, well, that's clearly like the easiest thing in the world that you're asking me about. So, I mean, it's good that I'm very chatty. <laughs> So I'm going to need to just go up to someone straight and I'm like, hi, I need help. Okay, thanks a million. Or rather than just Googling things because once you go into Google and you try Google and answer, you're on it for like six hours and you go down this weird research rabbit hole and then yeah. you're more confused than when you started. So it's just easier to ask someone. Yeah. It's a much easier way to start collaborations with people or at least kind of have Open. a feel for what other people do. I, th- I find it, my university can be a bit strange in that sense where I feel like, especially in the department that I did my PhD in, I feel like everyone had to, felt like they had to hold their cards quite close to their chest. Because mm-hmm. like, oh, well, if I have this discussion with this other professor, they're going to steal my idea and they're going to run with that. And when you think about it, it's like, unless they do pretty much the exact same research as you, that's not going to happen because you're the expert in this field. If you mention your idea to someone else, it is very unlikely that they're going to run off and steal your idea and do research around it and publish a paper on it before you do. So just talk to one another. And the crazy thing was in that department, no one knew what anyone was doing. It was always the PhD students that were obviously quite close-knit. So it would be the PhD students that we'd be talking and like someone might be kind of like, you know, having a bit of a breakdown at lunchtime because I mean, I mean, PhD students would have breakdowns all the time. (laughs) Um, They'd have a breakdown like, I really need to use this instrument. And someone would be like, we've had that for years in our lab, just call up and use it. And that poor student could have been three months trying to find it or get quotes to try buy one in and there wasn't enough money in the budget. Whereas if the professor just talked to, to one another, this could have been solved months ago. Like in my new department in engineering, that's actually not the case. Everyone's like pals. <laughs> we actually do staff hikes as well, which I think is really cute. Because <laughs> like obviously everything was closed during lockdown, so like we couldn't go to the pub or have Christmas parties. So mm. we actually had a hike in Glendalock for our Christmas party. Oh, and nice! It was just so nice. I just think they're the nicest department ever. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know people say don't think of your your work as your your family but sometimes it it helps when you have people that you can rely on in that sense yeah and I mean I definitely looked out because I know a lot of people that they do go to work and and that's it and they can cut themselves off at five o'clock comes that's it but I think with research you just can't do that your head is always working you need a hobby anyway to get your head out of yes. the lab and everything because you could be on the computer till like midnight and then you do, then you realize it's midnight I'm like oh didn't want to watch my Netflix show today and you're just raging with yourself but like it's nice that I do kind of view them as like a family like my old boss his name is Dave because you know everyone is called David Everybody's apparently called David yeah <laughs> um 
I always say he's my work wife because we've worked together for so long. And just to a point now, we actually bicker like a married couple and everyone else is laughing at us because I'm like, oh, you stupid idiot. Like, why why did you do this? Or why did you send that email and CC me on this? Now I'm getting like 100 emails from people that I don't want. And we're always kind of bickering with one another. And everyone's like, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, we're best friends, obviously. But we, we can obviously talk like that. So even when I go in to work, I have my work wife there. <laughs> I have everyone else that we're pals with. I mean, it's like, it is like a little family. It's like a little community. And you know, if anyone gets good news, bad news, everyone's there for another. And that's really important because academia is very head heavy. So you do need that kind of like outlet within your workplace that you can actually kind of relax or you can confide in someone as well. Because I read a report from years ago that 50% of all PhD students uh, suffer from severe mental conditions afterwards. So it could be severe oh, wow. depression. 50, so one in two. And I can totally see that from my group of friends. We were all quite poorly managed. Um, so we just felt this enormous pressure and a lot of pressure was always put on us. And PhD students especially are paid very poorly in Ireland. So like trying to live in Dublin on a very bad wage, you're working crazy hours. The old expression, shit rolls downhill, definitely <laughs> applies. So everyone, you do kind of cling to your like fellow PhD students, but there's just a, a lot of pressure on them. So I just think, yeah, just get a hobby for yourselves. Try chill out, have your little community within work because it, it all works out in the end, hopefully. So what's your hobby? I am actually going to start, I'm going to join a choir. Oh, I love fun. I love singing. And I was in a musical society before a few, maybe two years before the pandemic hit. Turns out I'm the world's worst dancer, but like I can hold my hands up in the air and tell me this. Unless I'm in a nightclub, like fist pumping, like that's the only dance move I can do. So my two left feet were just, they weren't good in like a musical theatre setting. So I can admit that. So I would like to do something like a choir where I get to stand still Mm -hmm. and still enjoy singing. (laughs) But it was a lot of fun. It was different. It kind of put me into like, or it took me out of my comfort zone, I'll say. Yeah. And to try dancing. But yeah, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) <laughs> it's not for me. I'm kind of done embarrassing myself for for this amount of time. Um, but it was really fun. We actually got to perform in the National Concert Hall in Dublin. So it was a big audience. I think it was like 2,000 people or something. So for like something, I never had really done this before. I always mm-hmm. love singing. Have a great time have performing my concerts in the shower and everything. But, you know, taking that out of the shower and actually doing it in front of people, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is very different. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice. And, like, I'm kind of getting to this stage where I'm kind of, like, used to, like, public speaking things like that that's something I would have always hated mm-hmm. but you do get used to it so I mean I could try get better at dancing but nah. <laughs> there's no point <laughs> you're gonna record podcasts with us instead. I feel like this is yeah I'm gonna be recruited <laughs> <laughs> I can get flown over to Florida and we'll have a great time you do have yeah. Disneyland I will have to come over Ugh. I am one of those I, I do yeah. apologize <laughs> I do not enjoy Disney oh so David says, there's a chance that more people have heard you singing than listening to you talk. At this stage, if you performed in front of 2,000 or so people. You like to sing when I have a few drinks in me, I'm not going to lie. I feel it's very Irish though. So I like to sing my, like rebel songs, Fields of Athenry, the good ones. But uh, yeah, I feel like it's definitely happened in the pub. One of the things I got thinking about when you're talking about the, the drop of blood on a, a medical device, I already know you know what, what I'm going to ask. Of course. <laughs> I read the book. I watched the dropout on Disney+. Plus. It was amazing. But like, do you know what? I did develop this device. I can test sepsis with like 1.2 mils of blood. But it's 
it's proof of concept. This thing should not be going into the hospitals. Yep. <laughs> and they are commercializing this. I said the my two postdocs that were in charge of me during my PhD, they are really awful people. And they really push for commercialization. No papers have been like produced from the results that have like that even I came up with in my PhD. I genuinely just don't want to write a paper on it because I don't want the hassle from these these postdocs. I'm just for me that's dead in the water. I don't care. I would just rather move on from that. But they received something like 8.2 million euro to commercialize this thing. We do have a patent on it, but I feel like that patent is stopping them from kind of altering uh, the device as well yeah to make it even probably more reliable it was not it was reliable when I could test it because I knew exactly how to test it like this thing was my baby so even I knew from the color of the samples that we were testing uh, how long I should spin it down for how to adjust the spin rates on it because you didn't want the red blood cells to lies and you get all gunk all over your electrodes that give you false yeah. positives so I just knew this thing inside and out, but to hand this device over to someone like a nurse, you can't expect them to know how to do this. Yeah. And we obviously had confirmed all of the our positive results and negative results using confocal microscopy. So just looking at the surface to kind of correlate, oh, we have X amount of bacteria captured on this surface that corresponds to the shift in our electrochemical signal. So to try and quantify the signals that we were getting from this, the sensor. But again, it just wasn't reliable. And I think they're after pushing a narrative to say that it is... 100% sensitive 95% what's the other one S- specific yeah that's not the case and they've been offered they've been given all this money I think they have a staff of like 20 people working with them now they have a Dyson engineer some hotshot flown over from America to help with the design they have instruments I know the actual physical instrument itself that has the centrifuge and the potential set to carry out the detection that mm-hmm. all works fine with the device itself because again you're working with blood blood is really hard to work with it's just so complicated and that's like why obviously this device sounds amazing and obviously the spin that you could talk about when you're talking about Elizabeth Holmes she was a dropout. She didn't really know what she was talking about when it came to the proper nitty-gritty science aspect of it. She was just super ambitious. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, this is a spin-out from a university that has a lot of high-hitting, like a good publication background regarding all of this stuff. So it's obviously more appealing than it would have been, say, Elizabeth Holmes, because obviously that's a huge scandal. And that will, you know, be at the back of everyone's minds, investors' minds for decades to come, and rightly so, because, I mean, they were worth billions and they just squandered hundreds of millions worth of probably a billion, I think. They was it? I'm not sure. I can't remember. It was. It was a lot. Of it money. was a lot. Yeah, she squandered a lot of money basically and produced nothing. So, well, just worse than that, she actually endangered people's lives. Yeah, that is horrific. Yeah, giving people like results that to say that they had diabetes and other things, or people would say that you were like pregnant or not pregnant when you were, and yeah, it was just a mess. But even with with this device, when it works, it if it worked properly, it would be fantastic. But I don't think it works the way that they are spinning it. And that is not great. But again, I've just washed my hands of it and walked away. Because for something like this, it needs proper FDA approval. It, yep. You know, there, there are a lot of hurdles to jump through, especially for something point of care to get that into hospitals. I don't think it will go anywhere. But again, 8 million of investment to go into a company that will probably die in two years. It's just... It's a waste of time it's a waste of money it's a waste of effort from everyone involved as well but yeah what can you do i mean is it not possible that there there could be other kind of um 
technological advances as a result of the research they've been doing or again I just think it's the the choice of sample that they're looking at and they just have this sob story that oh my grandmother died of sepsis everyone is probably going to die from sepsis like sepsis is you know your body's reaction to being sick at the end of the day so they had this sob story that they went with but like you know so you do need to work with blood to look at sepsis Mm -hmm. the amount of blood that you're testing is really important but you want to kind of spin a narrative that oh we're only testing a mill of blood if someone's really sick it's not very invasive you're only taking a a mill of blood from them but if you actually do have early stage sepsis you're not going to have that many pathogens floating around your bloodstream Mm. so the chances of you having a pathogen in that blood sample is extremely low unless you're really 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 sick and you have probably like a million bacteria floating around your blood then you have a chance of having one bacteria in that mill of blood but that is the scaling down of it is the issue yeah. if you're looking at something like dna mm-hmm. then you're in more uh, of a shot to do that if you had to like lyse something lyse a cell or something then yeah you're more of a chance of actually capturing your analyte that you're looking for but with whole blood it's it's a bit of a lottery you're looking for like a needle in a haystack yeah and that's that is the issue with this in particular so if you do want to scale it up look at five mils of blood to try put into a device but again if you're putting five mils of blood into a device and you're spinning it you're going to have clogging of channels because you yeah. have clumping of red blood cells because obviously they're quite dense and they will sink to essentially the bottom of the device and again this is where my knowledge came in of like developing this device and standing over it day in, day out. I knew how to like adjust the spin rates to yeah. stop this from happening. But if you want to mass produce these devices and not encounter these problems, that's it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, what is, just to be able to compare, what is the current way of detecting sepsis? It is the very old school method of drawing blood and doing blood cultures. Okay. Yeah, so there are these beads at the bottom of the the blood culture vials i think you put 20 mils of blood in with 20 mils of the culture Mm -hmm. and depending whether it's aerobic or anaerobic bacteria you'll get a color change with these beads at the bottom because it's obviously oxygen sensitive so you literally just put them into these big culture devices and every four hours the machine will take a scan because the machine itself can probably hold like two to four hundred bottles of this stuff Mm -hmm. so rather than checking it every hour it's just programmed to every four hours so that's kind of why sepsis is so time dependent because yeah. by the time you do the blood draw culturing obviously takes a very long time you're dependent on bacteria to actually just divide you know and multiply mm-hmm. um, and then you want to get the actual detection of oxygen consumption or production within the bottles as well so that's why it takes such a long time to actually detect sepsis within patients and four hours as well if you're kind of getting organ failure four hours you just don't have that time so the whole idea of if someone presents themselves to a a hospital they have a new thing within ireland and with the nhs the the sepsis six so you need to like uh look at their oxygen levels their heart rate their temperature then you need to take cultures you need to actually put them on uh, a broad range antibiotic basically straight away Mm -hmm. and then you obviously have the idea then if you're using too many antibiotics well you have um resistant bacteria strains then as well so that's kind of one of the effects of trying to you know put too many antibiotics into someone and you don't even know if they need them as well so Mm -hmm. that person can become resistant to the antibiotics but then you can actually develop new strains of resistant bacterial strains as well so you have things like mrsa within the hospitals that can then run rampant and just you know kill really sick people so you have a trade-off then as well yeah but it does work it is quite effective and the thing with (coughs) drawing cultures from people you do two of each 
so you were kind of like backing yourself up there as well because obviously you do have your false positives false negatives that you always have that regardless but you're doing an N of two then for for both aerobic and anaerobic yes for bacteria and for uh, fungal species as well for viral you you can't tell you just if a person is really sick you can tell obviously by their, their temperature dropping and their blood pressure that's usually a good indication that someone actually is suffering from sepsis yeah. when you kind of get to that point of organ failure your chances of survival then are they're pretty slim yeah or else you're going to come away you might have to get like limbs amputated and everything as well. it's quite horrific the effects that sepsis will actually have on your body yeah yeah i think that that's why so much money has been pumped into this specific project as well because it does play on people's emotions you do have these horror stories some of the most famous people in the world have died from sepsis. I think Muhammad Ali technically died from mm. sepsis. So if you actually Google famous people that died from sepsis, the list is as long yeah. as you. Like, it's just, it's crazy. So, of course, if you're going to a board of investors, like, I have this amazing device that can do all of these wonderful things and save so many people. It's going to be worth a fortune because every hospital is going to have it in their ICU ward. It's the same as Elizabeth Holmes did. Like, she played on people's emotions and that's how she got so much money. I mean, I don't feel sorry for the investors with the Elizabeth Holmes things because, I mean, they got bullied into it kind of essentially from her workings and how she was presenting herself to these boards. But again, really, lads, did you not yep. want to look at any data? How are you worth so much money if you yep. are actually going out giving $100 million to a startup company that is not even producing any data or showing you any physical data or allowing you into your her lab? Yeah. That was the, that was the thing I yeah, just thought yeah, was yeah. crazy, that they could actually deny access into the labs to see what was happening. No, just that. I mean, the board had absolutely no experience in any of the work that was being done. Just crazy. Yeah. It was just a big boys club, essentially, that just had a lot of money. And that was it. When they saw Elizabeth coming in, she was just dollar signs in their eyes. She was like, she is our cash cow. She's going to make us trillions and trillions of dollars. The fact that she was going to push these like wellness centers within, was it like Walgreens or CVS or one of those big chains in America? Like the, the amount of money that this thing, if it worked could potentially excuse me um produce the revenue that it could produce it was just staggering so of course they were like rubbing their hands together and like yeah we're gonna make it big and then jokes on you <laughs> yeah quite it, yeah it went the actual opposite direction so it's actually very interesting i do actually recommend the dropout on mm-hmm. disney plus is very very good it's amanda seafried that plays her as well and she plays her very well yeah so well i think we watch one of the documentaries instead but David says, so how damaging was Holmes to your field when you try and do some kind of pitch on microfluidics? It's strange because obviously what like Elizabeth was pitching to people it was that it is a microfluidic device. It was a pin drop of blood. It was very non-invasive. So initially you did get people mentioning it to you. But it was more so the fact that it was women producing it. It was nothing actually to do with Elizabeth Holmes and the fact that she was a woman and she kind of squandered all this money by lying to people. That kind of never had anything to do with it. But, I mean, I'm in Ireland. That was obviously a very big thing that happened in America. So we wouldn't really have that kind of same style of an investor kind of ready bodies that will pump 50 million into a company if they saw fit to. It's very much that you get a lot of funding from funding bodies within like that are government funded say like we have things like the SFI or the IRC or European funding so you know it's funded by taxpayers essentially Mm. so there's no risk essentially from the government there's no risk from investors so we were fine in that sense that Elizabeth didn't do any damage for us to try look for money at the time when I was with them 
but it was just more so the fact that it was a female-led team, which was really strange because, I mean, we had won a lot of awards at this. We had travelled around Europe to kind of just go to different conferences and pitching at them. And if we were pitching at something, we were at the only females out of, say, the 20 teams that might have been pitching. So that kind of whole idea that, like, you know, oh, it's just another woman coming up here, we're not going to listen to her, we're not going to respect what she's saying, that attitude still heavily exists, which is really, really bizarre. I just can never wrap my head around it because... In Ireland especially, we've always just been like so progressive when it comes to everything. Like even we were the first people to kind of look for women's rights, the right for women to vote. We had started the suffragette movements and everything back at the start of the century. So the, the fact that you still have these people with these attitudes and just like, you know, it's it's 2020 or something, whatever it was at the stage. It's like, are you really going to call this bullshit of like, oh, yeah, but very dismissive. Just like, oh, well, who's your boss? Is your professor a male? Get him to email us rather than these postdocs and PhD students that were all girls. They're just like, you know, it's a really disgusting attitude, but it, you develop a thick skin over it as well. It mm-hmm. kind of turns into like water off a duck's back. So even when I got the position within the engineering department, everyone was kind of looking at me I'm like, you are probably going to be like the only female in that department. But I had met them all before and they were all so lovely and they're so supportive. So it's the complete opposite of what I had like kind of not endured, but I had experienced when I was going to the say conferences that were around medical devices because it really is like that's very male dominated i think when there's so much money in a specific area you're always going to have these like hot shot male figures big egos and the fact that if a woman's coming in looking for money that's you know you have to have a male with you it's it's just it's archaic when you think about it well as lots of people have pointed out about elizabeth holmes like there are probably a hundred guys who have lost that much money on that stupid an idea and they don't make the news because they do it all the time mm-hmm. and a woman does it and all of a sudden it's sensationalized yeah so that's the thing and it was it was picked on and like that's the thing You're, it's a, such a valid point if you actually went on to google and looked at like the biggest losses for investors she's probably not even in the top 100 in yeah. america or something but the fact that it was she, there was such hype around her though as well mm-hmm. I mean she was going to the White House she was meeting all these celebrities she was like Times person of the year and she was really pushed as a celebrity and this idea that she was going to be like the female Steve Jobs and the fact that it was all lies I do feel like she was a special case but it was the era in which she did it it was when social media was really kicking off yeah. everyone knew who she was and everyone actually did idolise her because she was this young girl and the fact that she was a dropout just made her so much more interesting and intriguing and I think people could relate to it because they probably think that they could do something similar themselves yeah it's, it's maddening for those of us who have got our PhDs and hope that you know we're doing something valuable with the education you don't just have to be a dropout yeah well like I said my dad the the 12 year old carpenter I mean he did pretty well for himself um now like I said he did get vaccinated <laughs> but that's that's another battle for a different day. Most people don't need that much of an education. No, that's I, true. I like, fair enough, a basic education is fine. But the most successful people out there are the ones that just have their high school diploma and they go out and they make businesses for themselves and they have people working for them. They are usually the most successful people. But like, obviously, we have romanticized the idea that we are trying to contribute something back to society by doing research. And hopefully it is meaningful research. I mean, we probably are delusional sometimes. <laughs> I definitely am. But that's it. Like, I don't think you don't need a college education to be successful. Absolutely not. So, yeah, I think before we wrap up, where do you see yourself 
heading in the future? That's such an asshole question. I know, it's, like, a really, it, it's an interviewer's question when you're sitting in front yeah. of a panel and you're, just, yeah. you're sweating because you've been talking about yourself and trying to big yourself up for so long. The future. Can you imagine a dream project? Let's go with that instead. This <laughs> oh <God. laughs> doesn't work on audio. But David Robert Grimes is gesturing to himself. I mean, what's new? Uh, he is a project. He is something to be worked on, I think. You are an enigma. Anyway, <laughs> again, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, dream project. Do you know what? I would actually like to go down the commercialization route. Just Obviously, I've just been given out about it for the past <laughs> 20 minutes. But maybe not something that has the potential of, you know, killing someone if you misdiagnose them. I think I do like the idea of doing this kind of plant testing. But I also, within my department, I'm teaching the sustainability side of engineering. And mm-hmm. actually kind of seeing a lot of the research that people are doing around the, the water aspect of it is actually really, really cool. And like the kind of the new infrastructure that can be built to try preserve water especially say like in third world countries where they have limited access to water and how we actually can like look at the life cycle analysis of wastewater treatment and all these kind of things that's really interesting but i would actually like to look at say rapid e coli detection in water samples and Mm -hmm. i do like the idea of the plant pathogen detection as well because i i do think that is actually it's really important especially because obviously our population is booming yet again and we just don't we can't sustain the population if it keeps going in this upward trend with the amount of you know crop damage that we are seeing so if we actually can like reduce that kind of idea of crop damage and everything that we can sustain more farms and agriculture if we can just do have quick tests that can be deployed in the field i'd like to do something like that but i will probably die within the college that i'm in now dcu <laughs> i did my undergrad there i did my phd there and now i am teaching there and i feel like there is going to be a plaque on the wall of yeah she never left we gave her a degree and she just won't leave so that can be this can be the aiding wing of the student bar <laughs> i would die happy that's okay <laughs> I, and i also like the this idea that you don't have to be kind of lab hopping to be a successful scientist well i mean if you did i'm in a lot of trouble because <laughs> honestly i know everyone within this university and it's it is the idea that i'm just i'm happy there i'm comfortable there it's my little family i know all the cleaners i know all the staff i know all the security staff i know all the staff that works in the shop i mean they obviously are sick of me at this stage because the bar staff especially know me but they're good lads but uh, I, I do just love it there. And the fact that, you know, I have so many fond memories um, of the university when I was studying there. I do actually like the idea of contributing and giving something back to the students to try and make it an enjoyable experience for them. It's the circle of life. Yeah, there we, we go. are gesturing the Simba thing. <laughs> I, I think that is a splendid place to end. Yeah, so thank you so much for your time today. And I, and I only drank half a beer. Yeah. This is good going. Absolutely. I'm delighted with myself. <laughs> Thank you again. Thanks very much for having me. So, yes, I like to frequent this student bar that we have on campus because it is fantastic. And we used to have a night called Toxic Tuesdays, which got shut down. So then it turned into Shite Night. (laughs) So Shite Night would play all the best songs you could think of. Backstreet Boys, Westlife, Spice Girls, like unbelievable tunes. <laughs> I think me and the girls, my, my friends that were also doing 
PhDs, we were just so burnt out that we used to just go to like the new bar every every Monday and every Tuesday. But because it was shite night and the music was so good, we'd be in there for the day. And uh, I would walk home from there after shite night through the building to try and get to the road that would lead me home. But my lab was actually there. So I used to sometimes go up after forgetting something. But it, it was carpeted, the office, so I used to just turn on the fan that I had, which is obviously a fire hazard, and I would just gather all the dirty lab coats from outside and just drape them on me, and I would just sleep there for the night. And one time the cleaner came in to hoover the office and just opened up the door to find me stinking a drink, dribbling on lab coats that were filthy, covered in God knows what. And she's just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. She's like, oh, Aideen just you and I was like I'm so sorry what time is it she's like yeah it's seven in the morning people are actually coming into work I suggest you go home or get up and wash your face so I went back for a quick nap and then I was like yeah I'm not doing Wednesday in work so I just went home so you've been listening to two scientists directed edited and hosted by me Pambe Bahia and co-produced with David Basanta Gutierrez a huge shout out to David Robert Grimes for putting us up and being a most gracious host this episode was recorded in his gloriously sunlit garden the music once again comes thanks to Tara and Dermy Diamond and Dahi Sprawl the title of this track is Maggie Pickens and as always you can check out our website twoscientists.org to learn more about them Honestly, I think I know 25 Daves at this stage. Oh, yeah, same. They're everywhere. It's a pandemic of Daves. The one that I'm married to is not even the first Dr. David B that I know. There were three (laughs) in my department at UCL. What's the collective noun for Daves? Uh, A murder of Daves. A murder of Daves. A A gaggle of Daves. Yes.